I do love to talk about vulnerability, but um, it's hard work as well. And uh, anyone who knows me knows that it, it has a cost, I guess. Um, it's actually showing on my Fitbit, because my Fitbit monitors my heart. And so when I'm speaking, or on Wednesday night, I got so many extra minutes of um, <laughs> kind of high agitation. So that's interesting. Uh, as you know, I work with families, and several years ago, I was working with a mother and a daughter, and um, they came into the room, and for anyone who remembers being a teenager, or who has parented or worked with a teenager, you know that things can go out of control pretty quickly, and um, they were literally in the room two minutes, and after a few pleasantries, it kind of escalated into what I thought was going to be carnage. Um, so they were talking about you know, mum was giving off that morning. It had started at breakfast and she'd put out the yogurt for breakfast and the daughter had kicked off and she was accusing the daughter and the daughter was screaming back. And in my head, I was going, <laughs> I don't know what to do and this is not going to be pleasant. And out of nowhere, I heard myself say, I'm just wondering what flavour the yogurt was. <laughs> and they both kind of went, What? So I got a little bolder, and I said, I was just wondering what flavor the yogurt was. Now, if my supervisor had been sitting behind the screen, he would have rightly thought, she's completely lost the run of herself. Um, but I stood with it, because I had no idea what to do. Um, anyone thinks they go to a therapist for all the answers, let that go immediately. So anyway, I said, what, what was the flavor of the yogurt? And the mum went, I've absolutely no idea what the flavour of the yoghurt was. And the daughter said, it was strawberry. And I hate strawberry. I went, oh, I get it. I get it. So your mum's doing that mum thing of 50 million jobs before she gets to her day's work. And she just puts out the first yoghurt that goes on the table. And you look and go, strawberry? I hate strawberry. She doesn't know me. She doesn't love me. Blah, 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 blah. And suddenly, the conversation changed. And we had a really good conversation. And I think that in all our conversations and our relationships and all the moments of our days, we keep meeting these forks in the road. And how we take the conversation and what we listen to and what we pay attention to takes us down one road or the other. And sometimes the, the fork that we take takes us on a much more richer, enlightening conversation that perhaps is life-giving and transformative. And that's what happened with my yogurt question. So today, I want to take a fork in the road. We're finalizing our series on the parables, these stories that Jesus told us about his kingdom, the one that he was heralding in and the one that will transform the earth and bring heaven to earth. But this kingdom starts very quietly and gently in our lives as we follow Jesus. And in time, it will come to earth through us, the followers of the beautiful one. Jesus says in Revelation 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. That is what is ahead for the followers of Jesus. But for now, the kingdom is found in us and through us. And so this morning... I want to talk about the parable that's found both in Matthew and Luke and the fork on the road that I'm choosing. The reference I want us to go to is about the measures of flour 
rather than the significance of the leaven or of the woman or of the bread. This focus on the measures of flour is where I'm going to take us, and I think it will offer us an invitation and a challenge. So I am proposing that when it says in Matthew and in Luke, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, I'm proposing that what it actually means is the kingdom of heaven is like extravagant generosity. Rachel Held Evans puts it so beautifully. The kingdom of heaven is like a bunch of oddballs and outcasts gathered at a table, not because they're worthy or good, but because they're hungry and because they said yes. And there's always, always room for more. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, it's literally a parable that lasts a verse, so you don't need to worry too much if you can't find it. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into three measures of flour until it was all leavened. That's a parable. It comes just after the one about the mustard seed, and Jesus has been giving lots of examples of the kingdom of heaven. Just to note that yeast or leaven are equivalent as a sardo starter. Don't know if anyone makes sardo bread. Um, that's another story. Uh, it's mentioned 51 times in the Old Testament and 11 in the New Testament. And there's lots of debates about uh, the meaning of leaven and, uh, and what Jesus is actually talking about here. And if you read commentators, some will say that generally leaven speaks to something that is sinful and evil, that percolates through everything. Others are saying, no, Jesus is talking about this slow work of the kingdom where everything will be transformed and everything will be made new. And if you spend time reading a range of commentators, you'll find that there's a whole range of views and there's probably something beautiful in all of them. But that's another point to sort of note about. Where I want to go to is that I want to speak about the three measures of flour and I want to take us back to Genesis 18, verse 1 to 19, when the Lord visited Abraham and Sarah and spoke about the promise of Israel, because that was the first time in the story of God that three measures of flour was mentioned. So there's connections in the language, in the Greek and the Hebrew, that connects these two passages, and I think there's something rather beautiful in them. So the words that connect them not only are about the measures of flour, but also about the cakes that were baked. So the bread and the cakes have the same roots, and that's what's connecting these two passages. So turn with me to Genesis 18. I'm reading in the ESV, because that used to be the one we had on the table, but maybe with COVID we've abandoned that. Go to your phones. Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the earth, and he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. These were three strangers. He didn't know them. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, 
Quick, get three measures of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Classic. Welcoming Father Sarah doing the work. I mean, that's just a wee point I wanted to make there. Uh, and Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them while the, under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, now it's becoming the Lord. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, I think between 90 and 100. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child? Now that I am old, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So let's look at this story and look at it in the light of the cultural customs of that day. So three measures of flour would have been about 40 to 60 pounds of flour. So one woman could not ever, no matter how strong she was, she could not ever have needed 60 pounds of flour. This was a community event. And this, there's something in that. It would feed a significant amount of people and it speaks to extravagance and generosity. So in the story where the angels visited Abraham and again in the parable, we're talking about extravagant generosity. We're not talking about just let's feed you and give you enough. Think of the generosity of the wedding at Canaan, 60 gallons of great wine, feeding the 5,000, 12 baskets of leftovers. This is the generosity of the kingdom of God, following the one who called himself the bread of life. So Canaan itself, if we think of it, it was a land bridge between Africa and Asia. It was part of a direct trade route. And so people then lived semi-nomadic lives, so they were constantly on the move constantly on the move, and they were also constantly meeting strangers. And when you settled somewhere, there was a zone around your settlement that you were responsible for. And so when a stranger came into your zone, it was your responsibility in those days to show them hospitality. And it was kind of two-sided because in making them welcome, you also got them to be an ally, and it was safer for you, it was protective, so it worked for everyone. So hospitality was always the gift offered to the stranger. The male head of the house offered it. It had an invite, it had a time span, and there was a boundary around it. And if the stranger refused it, it could result in hostility. So it was in everyone's best interests to offer hospitality and to accept it. The guest could not ask for anything. 
but you always had to provide the best. And as a result of that, you made an ally and perhaps you got some info or news from another place. So the guest, as long as they remained in your zone, were under your protection. And that really resonated with me this week. That as long as a guest is under our zone, they're under our protection. So we as a community have to protect those who come to us, whoever they are, because we are doing the work of the Lord when we do that. And maybe you can thrash that idea out in your groups. So the story of God visiting Abraham in Genesis 12, he had been told, you're going to have a son, which sounds, sounded ridiculous to a 90-year-old man. If we think about where he was that week, he'd had a tough enough week. He had just had to circumcise not only himself, but every male in the household. Um, so he'd probably, it was a hot, hot day. It would have been a, a long and hard week. Sarah and Hagar, his two wives, were not exactly best pals. There was a, a difficult relationship. And so he's sitting, it's hot, he's fed up probably, he's exhausted, and three strangers shows up. And what does he do? He lavishes hospitality on them. He lavishes welcome and he says, you are my people, you will stay here and we will protect you. He sends Sarah off to make the cakes that would feed about 70 people. And after showing them, these angels of the Lord, such lavish hospitality, God gives them the most clear and concrete promise of a son that actually happened within the year. So there's something happened when he modeled out the kingdom perhaps that God then responded and gave him a very concrete promise regarding the prophecy that had been given of how he would be the father of all nations and Israel. Hospitality. Sarah laughs at the ridiculous idea of a child at her age. I think she's also laughing at the ridiculous idea of the process to get a child at her age, at the age of 90, I would suggest. Um, and none of you are laughing at that, so maybe that's too far. <laughs> but I reckon she is because the word is actually about pleasure rather than giving birth, which is not pleasurable. In Hebrews 13, it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to the strangers, for thereby some have entered angels unaware. So again, if we go back to this idea of extravagant hospitality, of extravagant generosity, that is the mark of the kingdom. We see throughout the story of God, feasting and tables, Isaiah 25 talks about, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make a feast of rich food and of well-aged wine. In Matthew, again, we have the wedding feast image. And that is, the, that is the mark of the kingdom, people eating together, people sitting around tables, people sharing lives, and people being extravagantly generous extravagantly generous. These two stories in Genesis and where we have the story of an unexpected and rather mysterious pregnancy alongside the story of the leaven impacting all of the pounds of flour. That's also an idea of the yeast hiding as it were, inseminating and causing something beautiful to come. So these two stories per perhaps suggest that like dough rising with a sourdough starter, 
leaven and the child growing in the room, the kingdom comes when we nurture it. The kingdom comes when we nurture it. Perhaps another thought is that we are called to bring the kingdom by living extravagantly generous lives or that the kingdom is found in the small and the everyday tasks of our existence, baking bread, practicing hospitality. That is where the kingdom comes and that is where it will grow and pervade the earth. Let's not limit God, Redeemer. Let's not limit what he can accomplish through us as we keep showing generous and lavish hospitality. But of course, it comes with a cost, and I think the cost, I think C.S. Lewis, I want to end just reading a beautiful quote from him in his book, The Four Loves. There is no safe investment to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around hobbies or luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up to see if in the casket coffin of your selfishness it is safe. But in that casket, in that safe, dark, motionless, airless place, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and unredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of perturbation and perturbations of love is hell. So C.S. Lewis is reminding us that when we live generous, open, welcoming lives, there is a cost. There will be a cost. But the cost of not doing that is greater. And we will, we're, we will be the lesser for it. So that is my, my invitation to you this morning to start to dig into some conversation about this teaching. And I think my questions will go up behind now. Hopefully, we're going to go into groups. For those of you who are not usually here, we go into groups and Dan will help organize that. So I'm going to try and read them from there. Reflect on the people who have modeled to you the extravagant generosity of God and share a story to encourage others. What are the daily practices that help you to engage with and focus on the generosity of God? And how do we as individuals and as this community lean into more of practicing the generosity of God? And I've said share ideas with SLT because I think there's probably loads of great conversations go on and we need to know about them because we need ideas and inspiration to, as much as you keep them in your groups. I always think of that phrase, that great wisdom that hurt people hurt people. But I also think of the phrase that loved people love people. And I think that the long, that's why I spoke about the daily practices. If you, on a daily basis, spend time with the one who loves you above all else, you will feel so loved that there's nothing you can do but spill that love out to those around you. And so perhaps think about what works for you 
in your, in your daily lives as to how you engage with and experience and bathe in the extravagant generosity of the Lord. <laughs>